0: that is meant to set the readers free. I don't know about you guys, but everything in this life seemingly tries to tie me down and take me from a place of enjoyment to a place where I feel like I'm tied to it. And and so even in religion, if we're not careful, we can get tied to something that God never meant for us to be carrying around as a burden. It's a backpack full of rocks. And a relationship with Jesus was never meant to be a backpack full of rocks. It was meant to be something that sets you free from everything from your past to the stuff that tries to put you in bondage and and in jail today and to all the things that God wants to do in the future in your life. He doesn't want you to walk around like you're wearing a backpack full of rocks. He, he, He came to set us free from sin, from the power of sin, from religion, from anything that might ensnare us and rob us of our joy. And so um, God sent his son, and you've probably heard this a million times, but God sent his son not to get rid of the law or banish it or change it. And when I talk about the law, I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. But he sent his son Jesus to fulfill the Ten Commandments. And he was tempted in every possible way that you and I could be tempted. And yet he was tempted and came through without ever sinning. To the point that the religious leaders of his day hated him, and you know what they did with him? They killed him. Now, what they thought was them trying to shut up Jesus, a false prophet, actually ended up to basically provide salvation as part of God's plan. God knew that if he sent his son as a messenger, that the people of that day, the religious people, they, he knew that they would kill him. He was aware of that. So when God sent his son to die on the cross for you and I, he knew that it would end in a bloody battle that his son would take on the sins of the world and die in our place. He gave knowingly. He counted the cost. Before the creation of the world, there was a meeting somehow between the triune Godhead, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, And the Son said, I will go. I will go as a payment for their sins. I will lay my life down. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man, or the Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus came specifically for the purpose of setting those who are captive free. To bind up our wounds, to heal us from the the stain of sin, to heal us from the sins that we've chosen, the things that we wanted and did, and now we feel ashamed of. God said, I want to forgive you of those things, but I can't just brush them under the rug. There has to be a penalty, and I will pay the penalty for your sins. That's amazing. And so what happened is Paul, the apostle Paul, was called as a man, and he was called as a sinful man. God found him when he was persecuting the Christian church, and that's what Steve spoke about last week, where Paul was persecuting the church. He was breathing, breathing out threats and murders. Now, we think of murders, and we think of he was physically murdering people, and I think that was part of it. He was at least, we know, consenting to the stoning, the death of Stephen. He was the first martyr in Acts. But what I want you to know is that you don't have to murder someone to murder them. That makes any sense. You don't have to physically kill them. You can hate them. Jesus said, You know, you've heard it said that if you murder someone, then you're a murderer. But I say, if you hate them in your heart, then you've already killed them. You just haven't done the outward action. We're accountable to God for that. And so, Paul was at the very least consenting to the death of Christians, and then he was having them drug out. He had authority from the high priest in Jerusalem to drag people out of their homes for being believers. And I like the point you made where you said that, um, you know, we kind of keep, whatever you do in your house is just fine. You know, in our culture, people kind of leave you alone. If you're doing something in your house, that's fine. It doesn't affect me. But Paul was going into people's homes and saying, you cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to put you in jail. And so while he's doing this, while he was a yet a sinner, just like he wrote in Romans, while we were yet sinners, that's why he wrote that. He'd experienced it personally. He said, while I was sinning against God, God shined his light upon me. He knocked me down on the road to Damascus. He opened my eyes to the truth while blinding me physically. He sent me to the, the house there in Damascus and a man by the name of Ananias, he called and had Ananias tell me that, He was going to open up my eyes and he was going to make me a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was not only trained in, he was being trained to be a rabbi, but he was a Pharisee. And so he was like to the nth degree. He was as high as you could get up. He was on the Sanhedrin, which was a council all over all the Jewish people. And so many believe that because of this, when God called him, not only was he no longer persecuting Christians and he was going to share the gospel, but God called him to be an apostle, a sent one with the message to the Gentiles. The uncircumcised, the Jewish people at the time would call us dogs. And I say us because that's us, right? Well, we don't, we're not from Israel. We're not of the covenant people that God made a promise with to bless them, to make their descendants as the sand of the seashore to bless them and to bring out of them a prince who would deliver them from their enemies. Jesus, we're not those people, we're Gentiles. God didn't make us any promises. God made them promises. But he told Abraham, he said, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through your seed, you're gonna bless all the other nations. And so I love this because God had a plan for everyone's salvation, not just Israel. And so Paul is planting churches everywhere he goes. And when he gets done planting those churches, he goes to another one. But then he's writing this letter to the Galatians, and he's writing it for this reason. Every time he would leave a place, he would raise up leadership, and he would go and plant another church, he would raise up leadership. And in the meantime, there was somebody kind of playing cleanup behind him, following behind him and going to the churches he planted. They heard that he was preaching that you could be saved not of works, But just by God's grace. Forgiveness is free to us. It costs God his only son, but it's free to us. We don't have anything we can do to earn it. And so Jesus sets us free. He pays the price for our sins. He forgives us, and now we're freed up to live for him. But there were people that came behind him and they're like, well, we believe in Jesus Christ. We've embraced him as our Messiah, our King, our Lord, our Savior. but in order to be saved, you can't just believe in him. You also have to follow the law. But they didn't say that. What they said is you also have to be circumcised. Now, to us, that's something medically that happens at the hospital, and it's for cleanliness, and it, it is, there's all kinds of reasons for it. We won't get into that today. But circumcision was more than that. Circumcision was symbolic that if you had one as a Jewish male, that you were saying outwardly in the flesh, I am God's child. But it was never about an outward sign. It was never about the appearance of being gods. It was always about, it was to point to the fact that inwardly you were softened to the Lord and you wanted to do his will. You wanted to be his child. You wanted to live his way. You were going to be different than all the other nations. That you weren't going to follow some other king or worship some wooden god, but you were going to trust the living God the one who made heaven and earth that's why we sing that song in those days they would worship local gods so they're you know if they fought a battle against somebody they were like well we beat them because their god was a god of the plains and we fought in the hills so he can't protect them up in the hills only in the plains and that isn't that kind of crazy it's superstitious but that's what they believe that's what they were raised in that's what their families taught but god is the god of heaven and earth And so what I'm saying is that they came along, they believed in Jesus and something else. Jesus plus anything works, um, certain behaviors, habits. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. If you could do something to earn your way to heaven at all, Jesus died in vain. If you can do anything to add to your salvation, then Jesus died in vain. Because Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed, he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, "Lord, if there's any way that this cup of suffering can pass, that these people can still be saved without me going to the cross and being crucified, then let it be done, and he was stressed about it physically he was he was pretty anxious, and then he prayed something else, he said, But not my will, Lord, but yours be done, and at the Lord's will, he went to the cross. He suffered, he despised the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, you and I and our relationship with him, it was worth it to him. And so these Judaizers, these people that were Jewish, they were under the covenant of God, they said, you can be saved, but you also have to do X, Y, and Z. We have people like that still today. There's one group that says, well, you have to worship on Saturday because that's the true Sabbath according to the New Testament or the Old Testament. There's one group that says, you can only be baptized a certain way in our water, at our church. You have to be baptized every church you go to. Or you got to be baptized in this river. Or, you know, you can name it and they've all got rules. And I was reading this and I was like, man, how can people be that way? But then I started, the Lord started examining my heart and and saying you know you kind of narrow the the way of salvation as well you've got certain conditions and he started laying them out to me we won't go into those today but some of the conditions that i had were things that i personally struggle with so i was like well you can't do that and be a christian you can't vote for them and be a christian right you probably had those kind of thoughts or heard somebody that had those kind of thoughts and no doubt, God will change the way that we make decisions. He'll change the things we'll, we indulge in or the things that we watch. Or, but those things don't add up to our salvation. That's just part of him removing the fleshly appetites and behaviors as we grow closer to him. But they don't save us. And so the Jewish Pharisees would come and they were against Jesus. And, and Paul was that way. And now he serves Jesus, and he's saying, look, God set us free so that we can be free. So salvation, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, is by grace alone, meaning that we can't earn it or deserve it. It's free, and it's by faith alone. We have to believe it. We have to accept it. If God offers us salvation, and it's this wrapped-up gift, and we never open the thing, did we ever really gain anything by believing in it? To believe it means to unwrap it, to embrace it, to get to know what it means, to enjoy it, to live it out. And so here we are in Galatians, and Paul's explained this all about his testimony, but then he continues in chapter 2, and he says, he says this, well, at the end of chapter 1, he said this, he said, "I, I went to the church in Jerusalem I went to these different regions. In verse 22, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, the ones who believed in Christ in the regions of Judea, that's in Israel. But they were hearing only. They didn't know my face, but they knew about me because I used to persecute their people. And he says this, all they know about me is this. And this is what people were saying about Paul. He who formerly persecuted us, Now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And so he's done a complete 180. He who once was against Jesus is now for him wholeheartedly. And because of this testimony, they'd never met Paul, but they heard what God did in his life. They glorified God in me, is what Paul says. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me, and I went up by revelation... That means that no one told him to go there, but the Lord laid it on his heart to go to this place and communicated to them that the gospel which the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So he goes up to speak to the apostles and he tells them the message that he's been sharing with the Gentiles. And he says this, but privately I spoke to those who were of reputation, meaning that he didn't just go and speak to the whole church broadly. But he went first to the apostles to speak to them one-on-one to tell them what he's been telling as a message because he didn't get the gospel from the apostles. Steve went over that last week. He got it from Jesus Christ himself. He went to the desert in Arabia and he spent some quiet time with the Lord and the Lord ministered to him, showing him all the things that he studied in the Old Testament and revealing how they were all about Jesus and pointing to the Messiah. And so when he comes back in, he just starts preaching the gospel. He doesn't wait for the apostles to say, okay, well, now you're approved. He got his authority from Jesus. But then he has some reason that the Lord lays on his heart to go to where the apostles are, and he goes and speaks to them the gospel he's been sharing. He says, "...lest by any means I might run or had run in vain." Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So this group comes into Galatia and all these churches after Paul and says, hey, you got to be circumcised to be a Christian. And Paul says, well, that's an interesting thought. But even when we went and saw the apostles and I shared with them the message I was preaching, guess what? The guys who were with me that were not circumcised, even being around the apostles who Jesus taught himself, They never felt like it was important to be circumcised. So where are you guys getting this from? Where did your message come from? Because the disciples that Jesus taught never once compelled Titus, a Greek man, to be circumcised. So where's this coming from? We don't find it anywhere in what God has told us. And so he says, um, and this occurred because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth, they came in under the guise of, of being just, you know, ones who followed the gospel. They un, By stealth, they came in to spy out our liberty. What is liberty? We talk about it all the time, right? It's in our constitution. It's in the preamble. What's liberty? We have cars called Jeep Liberty. Liberty means freedom. Liberty Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what our Constitution says. Well, liberty is just that. It's freedom. It's like taking your dog off the chain. You know, when my dog was a puppy, and even still now, if he's chained up for any amount of time, even if we go for a walk, we let him off that thing in the backyard, he goes nuts. He's like, this is awesome! You know, he's got freedom, right? He runs from one end to the other until he's worn out, and then he lays down and starts being a lazy dog again. He's got it out of his system. So they've been set free. And he says, these men, these false brethren, they're not believers. They're not believers. They're false. He says this, they're false brethren. They secretly brought in. They came in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus, that they might bring us back into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. We did not listen to them at all. They came in and said, well, you got to do this, this, and this. We're not having it. That's not the gospel that Jesus gave to us. Jesus never said, you got to do this, but also you got to do this. Even in prayer, think about this. If you've ever heard anybody lead someone in a prayer of salvation, we think about it, we go, well, there's a specific thing you got to pray, right? No, no. If someone ever tells you, you can be saved, you just got to pray X, Y, and Z, it's not true. It's, that's a formula. God doesn't, I mean, think about it. If you talk to your family that way, like, hey, what am I supposed to say to my wife? Okay, um, I've got the, the guide to talking to my wife. And then you go to page five and you say, oh, it says, how was your day? How was your day? There, there's no relationship there. That's a form. Now, should you say that? Yeah, I think you should. But if you're reading it to her going, um, it says here in the manual, I'm supposed to say, how was your day? That's not really a relationship. That's a color by number. You know, it's, it's like doing art and it's and that's all like by number. Well, that's not really art. There's no freedom in that. There's all these rules. And so in the same way, our relationship with the Lord is like that. But what I want to talk about for just a minute is what this circumstance was. So if you'll turn with me and go to Acts chapter 15, there's actually some history about this in Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you get to Romans, you went too far. Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, this is what it says. Certain men came down from Judea, and they taught the brethren. This is what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, you have to become Jewish first, and then you can be saved. And it says in verse 2, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, he kind of talks in the diminutive, which means that instead of saying they had a big argument, it says there was no small argument. Does that make sense? It'd be like if you were arguing with somebody and they are like, well, we had no small conflict. We had a big conflict. It wasn't small. It was big. He says, they had no small dissension and dispute with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So that's why they're going. This is the instance where it happened. He's recalling it in the book of Galatians. And so it says there in verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. They're sharing the testimony of what's happening. And they caused great joy to all the believers, the brethren, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, these are believers, but they've got like a mixed religion going on. They believe in Jesus, but they think that there's other things you got to do to be saved. So it says some of the sect or the, the section, the small group of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying this. It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Interesting, right? Because that's the same instance. There were people going to the churches in Galatia coming from Judea, Jews, that were preaching this to the... And then there were also a group that stayed behind. So when Paul got there, they would argue with him about it. So they got to work this out. Conflict and Resolution. Sometimes we want to work out conflict, but we're not willing to have the hard conversation. Can you imagine Paul's he's taking this long journey to go there to basically talk it out with these people and work out a solution? Are we going to preach the same gospel or not? Have you ever had a conflict with someone and you want to go talk to them, but you really don't want the mess that's going to come because of it? I have. It destroys my gut. If I really care about people... And they're doing something, or I'm doing something, and we got to work out the conflict. I hate conflict. Being a pastor is difficult because my gut absolutely gets churned up into knots, and I get sick because of conflict. But the Lord calls us to deal with conflict, not to flee it. There are answers, we can know the truth. We can be set free. The shame, the guilt, the worry, the anxiety, it can be all taken care of if we'll do what God's called us to do in conflict. And so that's what Paul's doing. And it says there, now the apostles and the elders came together to consider the matter. They're gonna talk about it. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, so he's addressing them as a group. It's almost as if the Lord just tapped him on the shoulder and said, say this. And that's kind of what happens. You know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, he's talking back to a little bit earlier in the book of Acts where Peter's on the top of a roof. He's praying. He's getting kind of hungry. And he kind of goes into a trance. The Lord gives him a vision. And the vision is of this blanket coming down from heaven, kind of like a picnic blanket, and it's got all these animals on it. But they're not animals that Jews would eat. There's pork on there. There's these animals that split the hoof and don't chew the cud and all the things in the Old Testament that you're like, why is that even there? They were called to eat differently, even as a nation. Well, there's all these animals that are unclean, and God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, hunters love that one because they're like, hey, that means God's called me to be a hunter. No doubt. God's given us creation to be managers over. But what he was saying, though, was eat these animals. And then Peter goes, I can't eat those. I've never eaten anything unclean. But God's trying to tell Peter something else. Not trying to tell him what to eat and what not to eat. He's trying to tell them this. He says, Peter, do not call unclean that which I have made clean. He's telling them. There's getting ready to be a couple of guys come to you, Gentiles, who are God-fearers, but they don't know the gospel. I want you to share Jesus with them. Salvation's not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And so Peter is faithful to do this. So that's what he's talking about. So he continues on. He chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse eight. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He's talking about on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Peter preached the gospel. God poured out the Holy Spirit upon the the Jews, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts no longer by the blood of bulls and goats, bulls and goats being sacrificed on an altar, but purifying their hearts. He says, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, he says, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Before this point, before Jesus came along, they could not just anybody could approach God. You had to go to the temple. To worship. And you didn't worship by talking to the Lord yourself. You went to a priest. And that priest would accept your offering. They would prepare it. They would cut up the animal. They would pour the blood on the altar. They would take the meat and the fat especially. They'd put it on the altar and they would burn it. And it was like a sacrifice of praise. That's why when we sing words, we're praising the Lord, saying hallelujah. We get to pr- We get to praise with the the sacrifice of our lips. No longer having to sacrifice an animal, something that would have been our livelihood. You know, if you're a farmer and you got to go kill not just any animal, but your best, that takes faith, right? Because you're going to use that animal, especially a bull, to produce more cows. You know, that's your livelihood. But what the Lord says is, I want your praise to be a sacrifice. I want it to cost you something. Because what you're going to find out is if you'll trust me and give me the best, then I'm going to provide for you all that you need anyway. It's not really going to be a sacrifice. You can't outgive God. So that's what they were doing. But he says this, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved. You no longer have to make a sacrifice. You no longer have to approach a priest. You can go to him personally. Then all the multitude kept silent, verse 12, And listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. James is the head of the church in Jerusalem. He's also the half-brother of Jesus. James did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. Can you imagine if your brother was Jesus? Hey, how come you won't, like, go steal stuff with us? Or how come every time we're getting into trouble, you're over there like being quiet? Why don't you, you know, can you imagine like goody two shoes over there? Jesus won't even get involved. We're having all kinds of fun. That's just a little sidetrack. But so James speaks up. He's now a believer. He says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, which is another name for Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he's saying, we've seen this happen, but where does it say it in the Bible that this is part of God's plan? Because sometimes we experience things and we're like, is that the Lord? Is that something that's going on that's false? How can we know? So James goes to scripture and he quotes from Amos. I know you guys read Amos all the time, but he knew Amos and he was like, it says in Amos, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will build its ruins rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even, it says, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Well, how can you be called by the name of the Lord? Well, Christian means Christ folk. And at the time that this was written, they were called the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so these people who are called by the name of the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, So then he says after that, Known to God from eternity are all his works. He did it. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from a few things. Now, they don't have to, but what he's giving them is guidelines so that the Gentiles can be brethren with the Jews, so they won't stumble them. So he gives them a couple of little common things. It's just like you do for your kids. There are certain things that are not really that big of a deal, but if they bother their brethren or their brothers and sisters, hey, well, don't do that if you know that bothers them. So he says to them, he says, uh, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. Don't worship idols. That's following the law. He says, don't, don't eat food that was sacrificed to idols. We talked about that back in Corinthians. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's a no-brainer, I hope. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's something that they gave the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not used to this. They were very promiscuous. Anything outside of marriage, that's sin. That's what they're saying. Make sure they know that. It's an affront to God, and it's, it's sin. He says, then abstain from things strangled and from blood. Don't eat blood. Now, think about it. What's the big deal? Well, they weren't supposed to eat the blood because in the Leviticus, it says, without the shedding of the blood, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no remission or removal of sin. But also, it says in the Old Testament that the life is in the blood. So the blood is an important thing. And so he's just saying, don't eat blood. Well, there were also people who worshiped idols that were eating things that had blood in them. And we have today still occult people that kind of follow this. They're called vampires. You know, this is something that's going on. There are people who do these little cult things, and they get together, and they eat blood, and they get somehow high off of it. This is happening. I know it's gross, but it's reality. What in the world? But it's all because of these occult practices. So there's there's a lot of history to this. This isn't just something that we can be entertained by. This is something that's against the Lord. Anyway... So his main purpose was to say, after they got together, they said, hey, apparently the Gentiles can be saved. Not just according to what we've seen done, but also according to the word of God. So they got together, they had a conflict, they came to a resolution. They said, hey guys, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to become a Jew to be saved. And so there's freedom in that, right? They came to a conclusion. Now I'm sure there's still a group that disagreed with them, but they said, there is no other gospel. This is the gospel by which you must be saved. He says this in verse 6, back in Galatians 2. This is what Paul writes to the Galatians. He says, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me because God shows personal favoritism to no man. God doesn't play favorites. He's, He's not even like us parents where we have a tendency to favor one kid or the other. He doesn't do that at all. He's not partial. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't play favorites. But on the contrary, verse 7, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was committed to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised, in other words, to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Peter was sent to the Jews, I was sent to the Gentiles. And when James, verse 9, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So he's just giving up the summary of what we read in Acts 15. We went to them, we talked to them about this. When they received the gospel that we were sharing, they said, yep, that's the same thing we're teaching. They gave them the right hand of fellowship. That's just saying we're in agreement. We give you the same authority. We recognize that you have been sent by God and you have the same authority that we do. We just haven't met yet. And so they were in agreement. There's unity. Psalm 133 uh, verse 1 says, "How, how sweet and perfect is it when the brethren dwell together in unity where the spirit is. There's freedom and there's also unity. And so I think this is interesting because something that happened when Jesus was crucified on the cross was this. We we know the story, and I'm going to turn there from Matthew 27. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. 27, verse 45. It's it's the account of Jesus' death on the cross. It's not just, hey, he died, but it's here's specifically what happened. On verse 45, it says this, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus, on the cross, cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And I probably butchered that. But Matthew is wonderful. He gives us a translation. He says this, My God, my God, why, are you, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus has taken on the sin of the whole world. People didn't see that, but that's what's going on in the spiritual realm. Jesus is willingly being sacrificed. He never sinned. He didn't deserve punishment. And the sin of the world is being placed on him. And so God, who cannot look at sin, looks away from his son, explaining the physical darkness that's happening and also the loneliness that Jesus is for the first time in his ministry on earth experiencing a separation between him and the Father that he's never experienced since before time began. And so he cries out, knowing that he's been separated from his Father, not knowing what that's like, experiencing the anguish that that is, to be separated from God. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me here alone? He never experienced that. And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. They thought he was crying out for help from a person who had lived way before. But Elijah, if you remember, he didn't die. He was called up. A chariot grabbed him up and he left. And the only one there to witness it was Elisha who saw him depart, his disciple. So some of those who stood there when they heard that said, the man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. It was kind of a, like, a, like a narcotic for the pain. They wanted to give him something in his pain. Now, Jesus didn't take it. He actually, I think he put it in his mouth and he spit it out because he was going to take on He was going to feel the pain. It going to cost him. But the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. You know, is he going to come out of the cloud and, and and take him off the cross? What's going to happen? They didn't know what was going to happen. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He gave up. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two, listen to this, from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, the graves opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or died were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection." They went into the holy city, excuse me, city, and they appeared to many. So Jesus' death, there's this unleashing of this spiritual power going on, and when he released his spirit, all this stuff happened. But the one I wanted to point out was the veil. There's a veil in the temple. There was these courts. There was a the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come to the the um, temple. They could be in the outer court. But then there's this next court that no Gentile could enter, and if he did, they would put him to death. That was in the inner court. And then there was a place that not even the Jews could go unless they were the high priest, and that was the Holy of Holies. God is holy. Man cannot approach God on his own merit. So even in that day, they would approach him that way. So when Jesus died for our sins, cleansing anyone who would come to him by faith... That veil was rent, that's what the old King Jimmy says, it was torn, but it wasn't torn from the bottom to the top, from the top to bottom, showing that it wasn't man who tore it, but it was God. That veil separated anyone from coming into God's presence. When Jesus died, the veil was torn. Now anyone who comes to Jesus by faith can come in because of what he has done into the very presence of God. This is significant, but you know what happened? History tells us that the first thing that the Jews did when they started fixing everything and getting things back to status quo, they sewed the veil back up and they closed off the way to God that God had just provided. Now, is the way to God closed up because of that veil was sewn back together? No. But ever since then, there are groups that are still trying to sew the veil back together so that only the elite or the right people, or the people that do certain things can come into the Holy of Holies. But Jesus said, it is finished. My work on the cross is sufficient for you. You can come in anytime you want. Actually, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says this. And it says it many times in Hebrews. I have to find it. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, he says, because of this, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This group of people, basically, they were no longer physically sewing the veil back together, but they were trying to make it more hoops so that anyone who wanted to come to Jesus could not. Now, let me ask you, before we look at this group of Judaizers and say, I can't believe they do that, is there any way in which you've done that? Maybe you haven't said it to someone, but in your heart, you've got all these hoops. Like, I think they could be a believer now, but they're doing X, Y, and Z. So that's, they can't possibly be saved. It, it, do you have any of that going on? I, I did. Are we of the same cloth? Are we doing the same thing? Are we making it harder for people to come to God? You know, we can do this very easily by seeing people and their sins. And because we're like, well, they, we don't say this, but we think it. Like, they're too far gone. And then we forget that we were too far gone too. That we were stuck in our sins and our trespasses. We had no power to, to quit sinning. And yet, God, when we were in the midst of our sin, he called us out of the darkness, he knocked us down, he humbled us, and he lifted us up, and he changed things. And he is still desiring to change things. There is still stuff in your life that God's like, what in the world are you doing? But the Holy Spirit wants to get that out of there to cleanse you, to erode the flesh so that you can be free from the backpack full of rocks. Don't put backpacks full of rocks on people. They've got them already. Tell them that you know the one that can take it off. And if you'll do that, what you'll find is that there's going to be a mess in this church. There's going to be people that are still stuck in a lot of junk. They love Jesus, but they've got a lot of rough edges that he still wants to work off. But then he can use us all to rub each other's rough edges off. So let's pray.